on July 21st, two movies happened to come out on the same date, and for this reason alone, it caused quite a fuss. Barbenheimer was talked about all summer, and it makes you wonder if this was the byproduct of some very sneaky marketing. But these movies and their directors aren't the only ones that deserve to be trashed. I'm Harry, and this is Trash Talk Reverse. Welcome to Trash Talk Reverse, where I trash your favorite movies and directors, or I do the reverse. Barbenheimer is an amalgam of Barbie and Oppenheimer, with the former directed by Greta Gerwig and the latter by Christopher Nolan. Both of these are pretty big names in the directing scene, with Greta Gerwig being more up-and-coming and Christopher Nolan being more established, and both of these, in my opinion, get way more credit than they deserve, just because they happen to be these big hotshot directors. And the same applies for many of the other directors I'll mention today, though not all. All these directors have a pretty particular branding to the types of movies they make, some more so than others, and that's why I'm not going to be talking about directors like Steven Spielberg or Alfonso Cuaron who make pretty much any genre of movies, or directors like George Lucas or Peter Jackson who are franchise figureheads. Since Barbenheimer is all the hype as of late, let's start with them. Barbie, as we know, is based on Mattel's Barbie dolls and Greta Gerwig is this director who everyone sees as the only female director on the planet. It's partly why I'm not talking about any other female directors today, because they don't have nearly the same fame, hype, clout, and big studio opportunities like Greta Gerwig, or the specific branding, which in her case is just women, broadly speaking. Like, that's her brand, I guess. My main issue with her is that she's horrible at coming up with stories. Lady Bird was a snooze fest, and it's literally just some basic teen girl with teen angst who has mommy issues and no real problems, and we're supposed to take that seriously. Little Women, which I didn't even bother to see, was based on an existing book that I read years ago that was honestly really boring. And now she's made Barbie, which visually it looks great, but the story's yet another corny, pointless snooze fest. It's beyond boring, with terrible writing. There's a whole scene where two of the Kens argue saying, I'll beach you off, B-E-A-C-H, which is obviously supposed to be an adult joke that I won't explain on this PG-rated podcast. But not only is it poorly executed and unfunny, it's super unoriginal. 21 Jump Street did a much better version of the beating certain things off joke anyway. Why is the dialogue in this movie so flat and boring? It's Barbie land, shouldn't it be more like, Hi Barbie! Hi Ken! Let's have a pool party! Yay! Let's go shopping! Yay! I love this outfit! Yay! Obviously not exactly this word for word, but it should be over-exaggerated and as Barbie-like as possible. It's ironic, because apparently the boring dialogue came from them trying to replicate the way kids play with Barbies, and it's supposed to be camp. But they must not have met any kids or been kids themselves, because kids playing with Barbies don't even talk like that. It should be really ridiculous, like they should just be doing absolutely anything and everything, like, Hey everyone, Ken stole a dog, let's get him! Just stupid stuff that kids would come up with. Not, I'm gonna beat you off, or do you guys think about dying? Like, that's so dry. And speaking of Ken, I saw even people who liked the movie were still not thrilled with how the movie handled Ken, because they thought Ken would never act like that. And they're right. For Ken to make more noise than Barbie in a movie titled Barbie, to have more of a storyline, to have a bigger presence, and all because they made him super out of character to do some fake woke commentary, what a waste of potential. The Kens should have just had Barbie's back and been their besties, but it's Greta Gerwig and her partner Noah Baumbach, the film's co-writer who's an expert on writing the worst sounding dialogue on the planet. The movie also tried to have some more emotional moments, but I hate it when movies like this, which are supposed to be camp or funny, try to forcibly insert random serious moments. Like I talked about this in a different episode with comedies forcing random emotional moments, and it just feels like they're trying to get an Oscar or an Emmy. Like, why can't y'all incorporate themes into the comedy in light tone with finesse? It actually kind of reminds me of White Chicks, because there was this theme of two guys learning about women's problems by pretending to be women, and it was funny and chaotic, obviously, but there were also more emotional beats woven in that hit just fine without disrupting the tone. 
And same with movies like Legally Blonde or She's the Man, which have like this feminist theme of women can do it too, or women can do it while still being women. But it felt natural when those movies did it. I think people like the message and the visuals in the cast of Barbie so much that most of them are just willing to ignore the poor execution. But there's still some criticisms coming out even from the people who did like it. There's a lot of people saying the movie was too lukewarm and attempted to cater to everyone and wasn't radical enough in its commentary. Other people thought the commentary was just a bunch of aggressive surface-level lip service, like the execution of the theme was basically an overt, non-subtle dialogue rather than the actual story. The movie's fans keep saying, oh, it's a comedy, it's not that deep. But the point is, they were clearly trying to be deep and they just didn't pull it off. Surely you can do better than corny monologues and crying in the corner because you don't feel pretty in the real world. And can we talk about this monologue for a sec? Because the way people were talking about it made it sound like it was going to rival Aragorn's Not Today speech. And then you see it and oh my god, it's so bad. Nothing on the actress, her delivery was fine, but the writing, good god. It's so hard to be a woman. You got to do this and that and this and that. And it just goes on and on and on. It's so repetitive. And it's like no one ever taught the writers about show don't tell. It reminded me of that one episode of The Flash where the female characters kept unironically saying hashtag feminism. It's ironic because then you got the anti-feminist right-wingers tearing it apart and calling it anti-men over some badly written screenplay with bare minimum effort. But they're being so loud that it's only going to make people support this movie even more and overshadow the genuine criticisms. This movie's such a missed opportunity and I feel like people are only saying they like it because they got caught up in the hype and bright pink aesthetic and felt like watching it was somehow the epitome of activism. Some superfans of this movie keep acting like there's never been another movie about women or for women or involving women ever before and so they're hyping up their feminist of the moment. Already people are starting to admit this movie didn't live up to their expectations and as the dust clears over the next few months more and more people are going to realize how awful the writing was. The story itself isn't even set entirely in Barbieland. They literally leave and go to the real world and then they come back. Bitch, why? That's the first thing that doesn't make sense to me. Why come up with a Barbie storyline where she leaves Barbieland? But they did, and so Barbie goes to the real world and she learns about misogyny for the first time. Like, okay? This is so dumb. And a wasted opportunity considering they created a pink paint shortage for a set that's only in the movie maybe half the time. I wanted a Barbie movie set entirely in Barbie land with a really fun and exciting storyline and a massive rewatch factor. And Barbie land should have been this super fun place where they just hang out all the time, not a damn matriarchy and an actual society where they have actual jobs. They could have come up with literally any storyline doing absolutely anything that could have been better than this. Darkness creeps in on Barbie land and slowly their land is withering so they have to save the land and it's a commentary on how society takes happy fun things, stories, toys, even kids content and turns them dark because they think it's more mature and adult and maybe it's a commentary on how society says you have to sacrifice fun and happiness once you leave childhood and grow up and also could interweave a subtle analogy based commentary on how a lot of people believe feminism and femininity cannot coexist so the Barbies have to recover the pinkness in their land or something. Or a storyline where Barbie's best friend Ken graduates from the school of Ken's and is having a crisis about what kind of Ken he wants wants to be so being a good friend Barbie tries to help him but then she realizes she herself doesn't know what kind of Barbie she wants to be and it's a movie about how everyone's pressured to be something and decide who they are at a young age and get thrust into the challenges of life without really getting a chance to explore themselves. They could have done hey what do Barbies and Kens do when kids are asleep and do a storyline surrounding that. Another storyline. The Barbies are throwing a massive summer bash, but suddenly there's a crime in Barbie land. One of the doll's heads has been removed. And it would be comical rather than horror like that guy with the crab head from Dead Man's Chest, so the headless Barbie can still talk. And the Barbies and Kens all have to work together to figure out what's going on and restore the headless Barbies to normality, and it turns out they're all owned by these overexcited toddlers and they have to get through to them somehow. This is just me riffing random plot lines for Barbie off the top of my head, but somehow what Greta and Noah came up with over multiple years of work is Ken follows Barbie to the real world, which makes her feel insecure, and then Ken brings patriarchy to Barbie land. Man, what? 
We all realize patriarchy can't magically be created in a vacuum. And at the same time, they're also trying to do this Mattel storyline and then another storyline with this mother-daughter thing and stuff about unrealistic beauty standards. But girl, you're in high school playing with Barbie, so you got bigger problems. There was a journalist who said that while overstuffed with ideas, the movie was reminiscent of Legally Blonde and Clueless, which is what it should have been more like, rather than trying to cram in every little woman-related soundbite. Greta Gerwig can't write feminism unless it's overtly about a woman dealing with direct, in-your-face misogyny. Like, I bet she saw Elizabeth Swan as a pirate and thought, wait, shouldn't someone be commenting on the fact that she's a woman every five minutes and actively and obviously trying to oppress her? Is Elizabeth Swan no longer a strong female character just because her character was executed with finesse and situated in a world that shows the societal expectations she had to break free from rather than having men overtly be like, you, woman, have kids now. And I shouldn't be surprised that her brand of feminism requires being colorblind too. I feel like feminism movies and shows with colorblind storytelling is kind of iffy because obviously there's a place for it and in some cases it's fine like Hulu's The Great. But when you have a movie like Barbie with such overt, non-subtle examination of gender and the patriarchy and going into the real world, it then feels weird to completely ignore racial dynamics, like especially if it's this exploration of men versus women. Y'all are really going to act like white women are lower on the totem pole than men of color? Like, what happened to intersectionality? You can say, hey, it's just supposed to be a fun movie with a message, it doesn't have to have nuance. But the writers opened that can of worms when they decided to force extremely complex and history topics into a kids IP based movie by oversimplifying the hell out of everything. If y'all wanted to make this movie about feminism, then there's a million other ways you could have done it. Barbie is having a great life in Barbie land until she comes of age to take the Barbie qualification test to become an official doll. But she fails and has to go live with all the other failed dolls and together they come up with a way to get back out there and gain proper doll status. Boom, another one. Just do some world building and some characterizing and the story will write itself. If you want a genuine examination of a strong female character breaking free of the patriarchy and dealing with the trade-off between motherhood and a career, Watch The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, and guess what? They're not even subtle about it, and they don't have to be, because this show thoroughly and comically demonstrates how the patriarchy impacts everyone, including men, and it's not shy about the fact that Midge Maisel is naive and privileged, and like many white women, her sudden feminism gets in the way of seeing things through intersectionality. And in this show, the main male character Joel changes and becomes a better person free of the patriarchal standards he grew up under and placed on himself and his relationship with Mitch that he owns up to and apologizes for ruining. Unlike the way Barbie apologizes to Ken after everything he did. Like, you cannot be serious right now. If the storytelling wasn't bad enough already, the movie even uses a narrator without rhyme or reason. You have Margot Robbie upset because she feels imperfect and the narrator breaks the fourth wall and says she's the wrong actress to use to make that commentary. Well, actually, wouldn't she be the right actor to use in this case if the commentary is that misogyny doesn't care what you look like? And aren't you implying that if they'd gone with a different actress, then that character feeling insecure would be validated? Also, breaking the fourth wall should be done with purpose and craft, like Ferris Bueller telling us to leave after the movie ends, or Deadpool just being Deadpool. And these moments of Barbie being insecure, like who the hell wants to see that? Who wants to see depressed Barbie, man? That's just lame. And more importantly, why the hell is Greta Gerwig promoting the boring yawn session that was Pride and Prejudice 1995 over the classic masterpiece of Pride and Prejudice 2005? That's the real crime of this movie. But seriously, I feel like Barbie is just the wrong IP to use to make a point about society trying to make women feel inadequate, because Barbie was never that kind of toy. Barbie was just a random doll you could do anything with. Kids were not looking at Barbie and feeling insecure. They were looking at Barbies like action figures to act out basically whatever stories they wanted. And the animated Barbie content that Mattel produced? Pretty sure they weren't making any girls out there feel bad about themselves. For a movie about a toy aimed at young kids, they easily could have treated Barbie like Elsa and had her strength and femininity simply exist. Actually, why did they even make the movie PG-13 as opposed to PG? I always find it weird when kids' IP gets turned into stuff that kids aren't able to watch anymore. 
especially when so much of the marketing seemed like it had been geared towards kids under 13. The marketing on this movie has actually been insane, and they're confident enough to be developing 45 other films and TV shows based on Mattel toys, so maybe you'll finally get that live-action Uno movie you've always wanted. The production budget of Barbie was $145 million, and the marketing budget is estimated at $150 million, plus theatrical distribution. Then they got Barbie Corvette popcorn buckets at AMC with a free doll, Barbie Xbox, Barbie-themed ice cream and cake at Cold Stone, Barbie Burgers, a literal Barbie dream house in Malibu, like an actual physical one, a Barbie progressive insurance ad campaign, not to mention how much they must have spent to shove the trailer and clip ads down everyone's throats for the past several months, like damn, is all this even necessary? By now, it's made the money back and made a profit already, but man, was the Barbie-themed everything really worth it? There was really no need to do any of this at all. When it's an existing popular IP or brand like Barbie, the name itself is marketing. Plus, the whole Barbenheimer thing was a huge boost for both those movies, and it's also why neither of them were really affected by the strike when the press tours had to be shut down, because there had been so much constant hype built on social media and word of mouth since, like, May. Was this intentional? Or just really lucky? I don't know, but I feel like in the future, it's highly likely we'll see Hollywood try to manufacture some sort of box office battle again and drop two movies on the same day to boost their marketing. Because of the impending success of Barbie, Miss Greta's been lining up quite the incoming resume. She's co-writing the live-action Snow White, which I'm telling you right now is going to be complete and utter garbage. We can talk more about that in my live-action episode coming eventually, but just know, if you want a genuine feminist and non-stupid or corny Snow White, look no further than Once Upon a Time. She's also set to direct at least two Narnia films, which, why are y'all remaking Narnia? She's already done a movie with four sisters, so this time we'll see how she does with a fantasy movie about four young siblings and a talking lion. She said she wants to direct more big studio movies, which, I mean, I can't blame a girl for chasing a bag, and maybe they'll even stop letting her write this crap and just direct, because she's clearly not good at coming up with the stories or even writing screenplays in general. It's not her fault, of course, because it seems most of the directors on today's list are the same. Barbie's other half, Oppenheimer, is also doing really well, only due to this extremely fortuitous pairing, and I just don't understand how Chris Nolan could have possibly justified a $180 million budget and a 180-page script for a movie about a guy inventing the atomic bomb before he knew Barbenheimer would catapult his movie into box office heights. And even after, honestly. This is a biopic, and yeah, of course it's gonna show explosions and such, but I feel like at the most, at the most, it should have capped off at 100 minutes and 100 mil budget. It has a massive cast of like 50 white people in Rami Malek, which is always typical for a wartime or historical movie to ignore the contributions of people of color and act like America and Europe are just white person central. It's one of the things that bothered me about Dunkirk, which was about D-Day in World War II and the rescues on the beaches of Normandy, France. You wouldn't have known from that movie or from your average high school history class that there were North African and Indian troops on the beach that day assisting with the rescue or that India sent 2,500 mules to France to help with transport or the countless campaigns fought by African and Indian armies in World War II overall, or the fact that after Dunkirk, these were the armies that were still left to continue fighting. There's so many war movies, and they're all about white people, like every single one, especially all the big ones. And that's how it's taught in history, too. Like, where's the movie about Sepoy Kamal Ram making Germans surrender their machine gun posts in Italy? Would studios even allow such a movie to be made and marketed? Would people show up to watch the movie? Or would they cry it didn't represent them? I know Oppenheimer is based on a particular historical figure, but why are all the chosen figures for such movies rarely ever people of color? Chris Nolan, of course, said Dunkirk was about the pure mechanics of survival rather than the politics of the event, which is a weird-ass thing to say considering those African and Indian troops were essential to the survival, and including them would have had nothing to do with politics at all. The film's historical consultant said it's not the film's job to tell the full story of Dunkirk and couldn't do so even in the time available, which is yet another ridiculous excuse because y'all are the ones who chose not to make time. 
You can hire a couple hundred black and brown extras to play those troops. And why do y'all insist on only telling the portions of the story that serve white people and ignore the rest or only include white perspectives? Like, y'all are choosing these stories. One historian literally had the audacity to say, What I'd love to see, though, is an Indian film about Dunkirk or World War II generally, and I sincerely hope Indian filmmakers are working on it. Girl, why is that burden on them, though? Why is the burden of making movies about people of color on people of color? Why can't a big-name prolific director like Chris Nolan or anyone else even think to include other groups or perspectives? That would certainly help destroy the white default Hollywood's been establishing for decades and which history's been teaching for the past few centuries. It's so patronizing to be like, oh, I hope the Indian filmmakers are making Indian versions of war stories since we're not going to bother to include their perspectives or histories. What if you're a POC filmmaker who just wants to do fun stuff about magical flamingos in pixie land, but you personally feel so under or misrepresented in the industry that you feel like you have to instead make stuff that corrects white people's perspectives and misunderstandings? And if you try to go make your flamingo movie, you're suddenly no longer allowed to criticize the industry for its representation issues because they'll just be like, oh, if you care so much, then you fix it. White people in Hollywood just so happen to rule cinema, and if they're not including or telling these stories, or giving people of color the chance to tell these stories about POC in wartime or other types of stories, and show those perspectives, then you can't just point your finger and say, well, they haven't done it, and it's their responsibility, not ours. And while this applies to non-war or historical stories as well, I think it's even more important in historical fiction, because people of color have typically been erased or minimized in Western history classes and historical media, and it's gotten so bad that when you attempt to correct it, you get accused of trying to change history. I don't think Chris Nolan is some raging racist, of course, though I would like to point out if it's ever the other way around where you have a mostly POC cast and very few white people, then people act like it's white erasure. Like y'all will not last a day in our shoes, watching hundreds and hundreds of content where it's very few or actually zero people of our races. Nolan, like many other white creators, has this white default simply ingrained in his brain. And before stands get mad and point out every single instance of him having a POC actor in the main supporting or even background cast, I'm talking about having an entire filmography with 99% white cast and almost only including people of color if they're from other countries. Like, this can only be the result of blatant ignorance and being oblivious. This one person criticized Oppenheimer for leaving out the fact that Hispanic American citizens were inhabiting the area where the weapons lab had been set up. History acts like there was nobody there in the first place, but according to her, they had 24 hours to leave, their farms got bulldozed, their livestock was shot. Some of the people were actually hired to work in the lab, but while the white workers got protective gear, they did not, and they all died. There's even this excuse with Oppenheimer that the scenes that happen in color are all his point of view, and it's all his confined perspective. But couldn't you have just put this stuff in the black and white parts? Ignoring all the stuff about the people who got forced out of their land or died and making it all about this one science guy makes it even more boring. I know Film Twitter and Film Talk and Film YouTube and all the film stands love this movie because they're obsessed with these director types. It's not even the genre that's the issue. Other biopics I can think of right now about some genius inventor guy are The Imitation Game, which showed Alan Turing, who started off making a machine to help decode German codes and ended up creating the first computer. And then there's Theory of Everything, which was about the life of Stephen Hawking. Both movies were pretty good, but it's really tough to make a biopic interesting. You have to know what part of the subject's story to tell and how to tell it in an effective way. I also liked Hidden Figures, which is about three black women who made major contributions to NASA's launch of John Glenn into space, but were hidden from history, as the title suggests. Though it wasn't just this interesting subject matter, it was the story itself, and the characters, and the plot, and the way it was told that made it good. The Social Network is also something of a biopic, and while a movie about the guy who made Facebook might seem boring on the surface, it ended up being one of the best written dramas out there. Meanwhile, Oppenheimer actually is boring, and it's about him in college, and his wife and mistress, then him making an atomic bomb, then World War II ending, then him being accused of being a communist, and somehow this movie has the audacity to classify itself as a thriller. It's just not an interesting story, like don't even care if it's supposed to be an in-depth character study and it looks into the ethics of science and politics. 
Also, some reviewer who loved it said, For everyone who ever complained about the lack of sex in Nolan movies, boy oh boy are you getting some sex as only Nolan could stage it. Direct quote. Bro, what? What does that even mean? And honestly, who is out here complaining about a lack of sex scenes in his movies? Like, I've never heard anyone ever make that criticism before. I'm convinced that people only like this movie the same reason they like any of his movies. They like stuff that pretends to be super complex and intellectual so they can feel smart and superior. From the movies of his I've seen, he's always had extremely weak and disjointed storytelling topped by a facade of intellectual superiority. Like, don't get me started on Inception. My god, this movie had no business being two and a half hours long when 70% of it is just Cobb expositing dream stuff and his life story to Ariadne, and the other 30% is just random action scenes forcefully inserted to draw out the conflict. The action in this movie is literally so mundane. Like, dude, you didn't need to make this an action movie if you're not good at writing action. The concept itself is interesting, being able to go into people's dreams, but the execution is severely lacking. The pacing up until they get into the first dream of their target is so slow and full of poorly written exposition. Then the dream levels themselves are pretty mediocre except for the Mr. Charles thing. While the dream storyline they created for Killian Murphy's character isn't bad, it doesn't have any emotional impact on the audience because the stakes aren't even there. I mean, he dreams of a better relationship with his father, but it's not real. And yes, success means Leo can see his kids again, but the actual meat of the plot has no stakes in and of itself. Especially not for the other guys on the team, who all have no personalities, by the way. You don't need to flesh out all your characters, especially in a movie like this, but at least give them personalities, separate personalities from each other, not just having Tom Hardy and Joseph Gordon-Levitt randomly be snarky towards each other to force some semblance of a historied team. Everything about this movie feels so forced. A story should flow, not feel like obstacles were shoved in to pad the runtime. Like, can we talk about how the movie would have ended 40 minutes earlier if Ariadne hadn't told Cobb about the quicker pathway? All she had to do was go off to the side and tell the others separately, but in order to create more fake conflict, Cobb was like, there's no other way, just tell me what it is. And when she does, he says, go tell them. Bitch, then why did you even need to know about it? You should have told her to go tell them in the first place without telling you. And of course, this is also that Cobb can finally deal with his mal problem and the only shred of a thematic arc is this whole dream versus reality thing, which is overall developed in a fairly shallow manner. They show stuff like Mal ruining everything and Cobb trying to keep Mal locked away and for some reason selfishly not telling the others, but then they explain everything you just saw multiple times. Him telling Ariadne about how Mal died was so lacking in tension, like really? This is how we find out? And him dealing with her in limbo was also really lame, like where was the development of this arc? When did you learn you need to let her go? What caused this sudden shift in mindset? Despite all the other times she screwed him over, seeing her ruin his plan this time was what tipped him over. Nolan Stans will insist you didn't understand the film if you didn't like it. But dude, we understand it just fine. I mean, how can we not with everything literally being spelled out for us in lieu of genuine complex and intellectual storytelling? In fact, he wanted to be this faux intellectual so bad, he gave the audience an open ending that not only doesn't work in terms of the plot he set up, but it also negates the theme entirely. First of all, for Cobb and Saito to wake up in the plane, that has to be the real world because it wasn't in any of the dream levels and he's already in limbo, so the only place they can wake up would be in that snowy place and then continue to kill themselves until they cross through all the levels since they missed the kicks. As for the thematic arc, Nolan says the ending shows that for Cobb, it doesn't matter if he's in reality or a dream as long as he gets to see the kids. But the entire point of the theme he just spent the entire movie going through was that it does matter and that dreams are not the real thing and that his kids in the real world are everything. When Mal says, let's kill ourselves and get back to our kids, he told her, no, these are our real kids and we can't leave them. And you did all this for your real kids. So of course it matters that you're in reality, because if you're still in the dream, then you failed and you never made it back to them. That's why he would spin the top in the first place. But because of this open ending and all the fans out there desperate to feel like intellectuals, the ending caused discourse that lasted years, which in turn only made the film more popular. 
There's so many other issues with this movie, but I really need to move on. Clearly, he's carved out this brand of science-based movies, which is ripe for thematic and character potential, but his stories have no intent or purpose, like the plots for Prestige and Tenet are literally just nonsense. I know everyone loves The Prestige, but that movie quite literally had no point. These two dudes are super obsessed with their jobs and getting revenge. So what? Oh, obsession can ruin lives, dude, we know. That's nothing new, okay? I saw Whiplash, I know all about performance artists trying to achieve perfection. Why don't you try saying something interesting for once and do it without having to force an extremely convoluted plot to make your fans think you've said more than you actually have? The way people rave about him, you'd think he made Minority Report. He's also done a ton of studio stuff with the DC Universe, but after his big fallout with Warner Brothers, that's probably over, and recently he said he would like to do a Bond movie. As someone who doesn't watch those movies, he can go right ahead, as long as he, like Greta, sticks to directing and not writing. Another big director with lacking stories you've probably heard of is Quentin Tarantino. This guy has a very obvious visual style and makes movies involving criminals and outlaws, basically. Pulp Fiction is hailed as one of the best movies of all time, and that really tells you the unfortunate state of our film criticism complex, because this movie is a pointless snooze fest with an unnecessarily convoluted plot. Reservoir Dogs, which was his first movie, was more straightforward but still really boring, and he does this super annoying thing in his movies where the characters just talk for minutes on end about absolutely nothing of substance, and his fans like to say he's establishing character, but really, he's just wasting my time. He's also done some historical fanfic with Inglorious Bastards and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, where I guess he fancies himself this hero by writing a version of history where his genius saves the day. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is especially boring. I mean, literally nothing happens except they run into the Manson family and save Sharon Tate from being killed by them, which is where the fanfic part comes in. Some people say it's all about the ride and it doesn't have to mean anything, but that's not even the issue. Like, yeah, these movies are pointless, but they're also insufferable because the characters are boring and there's no reason to follow them, the plot lines are stupid and random, and the dialogue is just hard to get through. Of course, there's movies that'll have a more decent ride while still being pointless, like Martin Scorsese's The Departed. I remember enjoying the plot while I watched it, and when it ended, it was like, okay, whatever, and there's no reason to ever go back and rewatch it for the sake of the ride, because it really is just pointless. Scorsese makes mostly crime movies, which is partly because that's what he grew up around, and also biographical stuff, but man, can you not use your imagination a little? He made the adaptation of Hugo Cabret, The Kid's Clockbook, but he keeps going back and making more movies about Robert De Niro being a criminal. In his defense, his non-crime movies don't do as well, but his crime movies? Yawn. Gangs of New York? Boring and pointless old-timey crime. Wolf of Wall Street? Boring and pointless modern crime. I mean, seriously, that movie was just them being degenerates for two hours. Now he's coming up with another movie called Killers of the Flower Moon, and while the subject matter seems interesting because it's based on the true story of some white oil men who killed Native Americans in Oklahoma for oil, the trailer makes it seem like it's going to be mostly from the point of view of the killers rather than the Osage women who were affected. I'm assuming they're the killers because it seems pretty obvious, so if they're not, I would be surprised. I'm just so sick of crime and mafia-type movies, like it's gotten so old, and they're never interestingly done anyway, or done in a way that's new. However, given that this movie is more like a historical drama, it'll probably be pretty decent. Not that I'm gonna watch it anyway. Speaking of movies I haven't watched, I haven't seen a single thing from Guillermo del Toro's filmography. I haven't even seen any of his Troll Hunter shows on Netflix, though they do look cool. But I'm including him on the list because he fits the bill of director that people tend to know and has something of a brand, which I'd probably classify as weird. Not in a bad way, like, he makes movies that are just genuinely weird and different and not typical. I can commend him for actually having something of an imagination and going with the beat of his own drum, so to speak. He made movies like Pan's Labyrinth and Hellboy and Pacific Rim, so he's not exactly tied down by genre anyway. I do have to say, though, his big Oscar-winning Best Picture Shape of Water was honestly too weird. I mean, why do we need a movie about a lady screwing a fish? Sorry, fish man. Yeah, yeah, who's the real monster? Yeah, yeah, powerful versus the voiceless. But goddamn, it's so weird, and I read the plot summary, and I just can't get behind the fish guy. But you know what? The themes seem cool, and the movie isn't pointless like the other guys. He also made a Pinocchio movie recently, and look, I'm sure it's lovely, but I'm sort of married to the version of Pinocchio from Once Upon a Time. 
Another director I actually don't dislike is Jordan Peele. Most of us obviously knew him way before because of Key and Peele, but he made such a big splash with Get Out that he sort of instantly made a name for himself as a big feature film writer-director and he kind of branded himself quickly as a horror guy. But while other directors had the problem of not doing enough with the stories, I think he kind of has the problem of trying to do too much. Get Out was a smash hit, but his follow-up Us was kinda… eh. Sure, it had some great sequences and funny moments, and this is one of those movies where it's like, yeah, you enjoy the ride, but the plot twist was stupid and honestly shouldn't even have been a plot twist, because there's no way you couldn't have seen it coming after watching the intro sequence of the movie. The bigger plot twist would have been if those girls hadn't switched places. Spoiler, I guess, but if you haven't seen one of these movies I've mentioned so far, you're probably not going to get around to it anyway. So because of that twist, I guess, you were supposed to have been rooting for the bad guy all along, but she's not really the bad guy herself because she was just a kid and the original girl is the bad guy, but in the end, no one's really the bad guy except this giant chain of red-clothed people across the earth, I guess. It's random as hell, man, honestly. I know it's got these important themes, but they just did not intersect properly with the movie's storyline. Nope kind of had the same issue except while the themes were more evident, I think there were just way too many of them crammed into one movie, and maybe with some restructuring it could have been a more solid story. He really is a great horror director though, and he doesn't suck at the story part either, which is unique for a director apparently. You know who does suck at stories though? James Cameron. He's probably the most overrated director with his box office luck and hundreds of millions of dollars marketing campaigns. This man apparently used to be such an asshole on set that Ron Howard had to smack some sense into him. He made generic ass Titanic and how he managed to turn a movie about a ship on the ocean into a snooze fest, I couldn't say. Seriously, Jack and Rose are such complete boring losers, I don't understand the people who like this movie and find it romantic when there's no development in the romance or in their personalities apart from them dealing with Rose's fiancé who's literally a cartoon villain. If you want a seafaring adventure romance that's actually good, watch the first three parts of the Caribbean movies because Will and Elizabeth are on a completely different level. They're smart, they get stuff done, their class division conflict actually holds water, and their story is woven seamlessly through the series. Gentlemen Prefer Blondes is another movie that deals with romance on a ship, and it handles class and financial division discourse much better than Titanic could even attempt to. Avatar was also a snooze fest, and he only makes so much money from those movies because he rents out every single theater on the entire planet for as many showings as he can and pumps hundreds of millions of dollars into shoving the movies down everyone's throats, and charges a fortune for the tickets. Also, I guess he's known as this VFX innovation guy, and I'm not a stickler about VFX or anything like that, but I don't see how the visuals on his latest movie are better than anything else that's currently coming out. His stories for both avatars are so boring too and so predictable. And I don't mind predictable if I'm so into watching something that I want to see certain things happen because then it's like, yes, thank God that happened. Or if the ride itself is fun. He's just boring. He's unimaginative. He came up with the Native American environmentalist ripoff species of the Navi who are blue and live on Pandora and said, okay, that's enough innovation for a lifetime. Sure, it's a decent message he's putting across, but it doesn't matter if the movies are unwatchable and tedious. They're very unmemorable too, like the only thing I remember from the first movie was the weird tail sex thing they did. He says all his movies are love stories at their core, but why do the love stories and the feeble plot surrounding them suck so bad? Unfortunately, people must respond to heavy marketing or otherwise have been in a serious cinema drought because the second movie also made a ton of money. And now there's gonna be three more. Hooray! A director that I would consider as genuinely known for innovation would be Tim Burton. He's carved out a very particular and identifiable directorial style with the gothic horror eccentric colorful creepy weird aesthetic, which may not float everyone's boat, but he's a master of crafting visual worlds. You probably know him from Beetlejuice and live action Alice in Wonderland and most recently Wednesday, which are all different stories, but you can still tell it was from the same director, which is cool. I notice he actually hasn't written most of the stuff he's made, which is also a rare find for these critically acclaimed type directors, but I feel like that should only be encouraged more. Like clearly not everyone's cut out to be a writer. There's no reason to prop up people who are writer-directors because even though they do more of the work, a lot of them suck at half the job. 
In Tim Burton's case, he tells the stories he was, but he lets other people write them for him, and that's something that seems to be working for him. I can always respect when someone can bring their vision to someone else's writing and make it their own. Right now, he's working on the sequel to Beetlejuice, so we'll see how that turns out next year. Another big name in the horror spectrum is M. Night Shyamalan, who made a name for himself with The Sixth Sense. I feel like this is a guy who just kind of minds his business and makes his movies, but of course everyone also knows him as the guy who made that terrible live-action version of Avatar The Last Airbender, which I've never seen, but I know his movies are generally reviewed as pretty hit or miss. Like Split was a critical success, but the sequel Glass wasn't at all. I do wonder though if there's a particular reason he gets criticized so heavily, because all these other directors have made terrible movies as well, but they're getting critical acclaim and praise. It must be our societal landscape that has somehow tricked people into thinking that these other directors are genuinely good storytellers. One thing I did find interesting about M. Night is that he started funding his own movies after working with studios for 10 years, and it kind of sucks how creatives have to be so reliant on these studios led by uncreative business people who don't know a thing about storytelling and think they understand audiences and marketing better than they actually do. But as we've seen, some creatives don't know storytelling either, and that's why we got dudes like Wes Anderson who has a very distinct directorial style of super colorized movies, I guess, but makes the actual stories really boring and weird and gets mass critical acclaim anyway. The Grand Budapest Hotel is probably one of the worst movies I've ever seen, period. And for some reason, film buffs around the world hail it as one of the greatest. Why? Because it's this quirky indie movie? It's so boring and overly drawn out, devoid of any emotion, has a plot you can't be bothered to care about, and visually, it's just not appealing. Though I guess that last part is kind of a personal preference. Some people can get away with making literally anything out of the ordinary and get called illustrious geniuses for it. Then once in a while, you'll get the rare writer-director who doesn't actually suck. Denis Villeneuve hasn't written every movie he's directed, but that's okay because this guy made a rival so he can just retire peacefully right now knowing he made one of the best movies to ever exist in the history of time. I'm not kidding y'all, like this is what cinema is about. The story, the emotion, the human-alien connection, the human-human connection, the overlapping thematic arcs, the subtlety, it's so well done and so powerful. And from a directorial standpoint, he killed it with the production and sound design. His technical direction is something else, like no wonder Dune swept all the technical Oscars last year. He made the Blade Runner sequel, which was pretty good, and also Prisoners, which, as y'all know at this point, it really ruined itself for me with its trash storyline after starting out so well. But if not for the terrible plot twist and answers, which, in all fairness, he didn't write, the direction was actually great in this movie, and it actually made it somewhat watchable. Right now, though, this man is occupied with the Dune series, which is unfortunately boring for me, but lots of people seem to like it, so good for him getting that guaranteed check for the next decade or however long the series is going to last. The last sort of big-name writer-director on our list is Bong Joon-ho. This guy makes some insane movies. Parasite obviously was a smash success. It's a movie that subverts expectations without trying to subvert expectations. There's a lot of effortless comedy, but also significant sociopolitical commentary woven in quite nicely. He also made this movie called Mother that seems like this quiet mystery thriller, but it really is about what means to be a parent. Snowpiercer is probably his most famous movie that everyone knows, where the last remnants of society are crammed together into a train as sort of a metaphor for class hierarchy, with a really well-told plotline. This is a writer-director whose writing doesn't bring him down. But for most of the others out there, it's okay to not write the movies you'll direct. Seriously. I don't know who came up with this idea that these writer-director auteur types were worthy of all this praise and prestige simply for doing multiple jobs. Just because you think you can sell the movie because of the writer-director's name and pour some millions into marketing, that doesn't mean you should let them write whatever crap they want. And I'm not saying these studio execs know any better or that writers who don't direct are necessarily better, but someone has to let these directors and these awards and prestige systems know that it's okay to let someone else write the movie. Like there's no need to hold writer-directors on some weird pedestal above regular directors who don't necessarily write their movies. In fact, let me name some directors who did direct someone else's screenplay. Everyone who directed a Harry Potter movie like Chris Columbus, Alfonso Cuaron, Mike Newell, David Yates, 
seriously underrated for taking on such a huge task. Gore Verbinski, who did the first three Pirates movies, like what a stunning trilogy. And he didn't write a single word. And that's okay. Catherine Bigelow, who directed Hurt Locker, Zero Dark Thirty, and Detroit, who doesn't get enough recognition as a woman director, but I guess she doesn't fit the bill for the fake feminist crowd just because she didn't make movies specifically for and about women and gender. And some people who wrote their own stuff and didn't suck, Christopher McQuarrie, who directed and wrote the latest few Mission Impossibles, Jane Campion, who did Power of the Dog, top indie filmmakers Spike Lee and Mira Nair, Peter Jackson, who did Lord of the Rings and Hobbit trilogies, and Spielberg, of course, who's done all of the above. And if y'all really want more women directors to succeed, get out there and give those women the same support and hype y'all give Greta Gerwig. And if you want a movie that treats women like human beings and deals with the ethics of science and technology instead of wasting five hours on Barbenheimer, go watch Mission Impossible, where the female characters are like the antithesis of Bond girls and get to be regular people with their own personalities who don't expire after they hit 30 or 40, but are also badasses who can hold their own in a fight against men. And the latest movie, Dead Reckoning, is particularly timely given that it's about the dangers of artificial intelligence and how it can take over our lives. And that's one of the main reasons both the writers and actors guilds are on strike, because studios want to use AI to low-key replace them. The future of cinema is looking a little uncertain right now, but one thing's for sure, and that is, despite the criticisms in this episode, at least everyone I mentioned today, they've all made their movies with integrity. Thanks for listening. And once again, this was Trash Talk Reverse. 